0: Well, thank you, Charlie, very much. And it's certainly a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, As you realize, I don't have an accent because I'm English, and this is called English. It's it's you guys who mess it up. Uh, But it's been wonderful to be here at uh, His Hill for the Thanksgiving conference. It's a it's a great event, and uh, some of you were there, others uh, there's a few were uh, drugged out on Turkey probably and unable to get out of bed, but uh, it's been a wonderful time to meet with the folks there and the, and the great bunch of students they have some of whom are here not everybody, not you, but no <laughs> it's been, uh, been lovely to, to be here now I'm going to read you from Philippians chapter 4 I'll try not to talk fast, uh, but as Charlie says, I'm, I'm, I'm running at the end of the service. But Philippians 4, I'm going to read verse 4 to 7, and then three verses later in the chapter. These are familiar verses to many, many people. Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again. 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him, that is, through Christ who gives me strength. Keep your Bible open there. If you met someone on the street who said you have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, I wonder how you might respond to them. Well, I don't know you personally in most cases, but I would suggest some of us would probably respond with some caution perhaps a little cynicism you might say well if what you're saying is true you certainly don't have the pressures that I have to live with you don't have my disappointments you don't struggle with my temptations you don't experience my fears you you don't have my illness for sure you're not married to my wife (laughs) or husband and you definitely don't have my kids if you say I've learned to be content in any and every situation you probably think whoever said that is either kidding himself or he's wrapped in cotton wool lives in a nice cozy comfortable Environment. Yeah, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote in these verses. And when you read the letter to the Philippians, it presents itself as something of a paradox because, on the one hand, it is one of the most positive books in the New Testament, and 20 times you've got words like rejoice or joy, or be glad. Plus, there's a spirit of confidence and joy that seems to permeate through these pages. Sometimes, Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. It, 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 the word joy occurs in a number of titles on commentaries on the book of Philippians. And so you read that element of this book, and you say to yourself, you know, Paul must be in a very good mood when he wrote this book. He must be having a wonderful time. He's gone on another missionary journey, and he's ended up in a beautiful Mediterranean island like Malta or Majorca. And he's sort of sitting on the beach under a palm tree. His toe is in the water, and he's dictating his letter to his friend Epaphroditus who's sitting under the next palm tree, and he says to Epaphroditus, hey, write this down, Epaphroditus, rejoice in the Lord always. Did you get that, Epaphroditus? Okay, and let's do it again. And again I say rejoice. Man, we're in a fantastic time. The sky is blue, the sun is shining, the water is warm, the sand is beautiful, this tree is a great shade. And he starts to sing his favorite song of the day, I've got a beautiful feeling everything's going my way. (laughs) You might think that. But there's another theme running through this book, and it's the theme of suffering. Four times in chapter one, he describes himself as being in chains. In addition to that, there's lots of reference to suffering, to persecution, to pain. Why is he in chains? Well, he's in prison. The book doesn't tell us where he's in prison. He knew those of us who are Bible students need something to do later And people have speculated, but I think it's pretty obvious to me that he's in prison in Rome. I won't go into all the details, but he does say in chapter 4 and verse 23, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Whenever he's saying, hey, all, all the saints in Caesar's household send you greetings, you'd say, oh, I think he must be in Rome, wouldn't you? If you got a letter from somebody who said, all the saints in the White House send you greetings, would you say, I think this was written from Los Angeles? No, it's come from Washington. Maybe you think there's no saints in the White House, but anyway, that's beside the point. (laughs) He's kind of geographically identified it. If Paul is in Rome, almost certainly he is, why is he in prison in Rome? Well, you've got to go back to the last seven chapters of the book of Acts, and Paul came back from his third missionary journey, His intent was, when he got back, he'd spend time with the church in Jerusalem, and then he would head off into new territory. He said, I've done everything I can do in the particular calling that he had in the areas that he'd been in. I'm now going to go to Spain. And he wrote his letter to the Romans, saying, I want to go to Spain after my brief time in Jerusalem. And I noticed on the map, Rome was about halfway I'm going to visit you in Rome. I'm not going to build on anybody else's foundation. Somebody else started the church in Rome. I'm just going to pass by, greet you, and move on to Spain, which is my next mission field. That was his intent. But he brought back with him from uh, his journeys a Gentile convert whose name was Trophimus. He probably called him Troph for short. <laughs> And Paul went into the temple region which as a Jew he was entitled to do but which his friend Trophimus was not entitled to do so Paul didn't take him but people saw Paul there and said, oh Paul must have brought Troph with him. By the way, this was Christians. Christian gossips who passed the word around. Paul's breaking the Jewish law. And some of the hardline Jewish people got hold of this and they said we're going to arrest this man when he leaves the temple because he's violating our law and a whole gang were there to actually do more than that some of them to kill him and so when Paul left the temple Trophimus was nowhere to be seen of course he wasn't with him it was a a misunderstanding or a lie (laughs) and uh the Roman soldiers, realizing he was under threat, rescued him for his own safety, took him and shut him up in a jail. And then he got word in jail, there's a group of men who vowed not not to eat until they've killed Paul. And so Paul was taken by a Roman group down to Caesarea, which is where the Roman governor had his headquarters. In the days of Pontius Pilate, a few years before, the Roman headquarters were in Jerusalem, but now they moved to Caesarea, a new city named after Caesar, and that's where the government, the Roman government, had its headquarters in Judea. And uh, Paul was taken down there, brought before the Roman governor, whose name was Felix, He knew there was no case to answer and said, if you pay a bribe, you can go free. And Paul didn't pay bribes. He said, no, I don't pay bribes. You let me free because it's unjust to hold me here. I've committed no crime. But Felix locked him up waiting for a bribe. And Paul stayed there for two years. At the end of two years, Felix was recalled to Rome and replaced by a man called Festus. When Festus arrived, he wanted to clear up all the outstanding cases in, in, his, uh, in his prison. And uh, Paul was brought before him. And Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. You have no right to hold me here. And as a Roman citizen, I appealed to Caesar. Caesar was the Supreme Court, really. I appealed to Caesar. He said, all right, you have the right to appeal to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. And they put him on a boat to send him to Rome. The boat sank several times on the way. He got shipwrecked in Malta, spent the whole winter in Malta got bitten by a snake there, you probably know all these stories. Eventually he arrived in Rome, probably took him the best part of a year to get there, and when he got to Rome, Caesar wasn't interested. And so the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome for two years, either incarcerated or under house arrest, in which case he had a little bit of liberty, and he spent time in both. Now, do the arithmetic, two years in Caesarea, the best part of a year on the journey to Rome, two years in Rome, that's five years that Paul has been arrested and kept as a prisoner by the Romans. And uh, you would think, when the folks in Philippi got the news, we have a letter from the Apostle Paul, and they say to him, that's fantastic, we haven't heard from him for five years. No, he's been in prison all this time on false charges, wasting some of the seemingly best years of his life. They'll say, "Boy, this this letter is going to be a stinker. <laughs> he is going to be so angry, so upset." And they open the letter and they start to read and it says things like, "Rejoice in the Lord." And then he says, I'll say it again, in case you think I wrote the wrong word down by mistake and I really should have written react. I'll say it twice, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Because, as I'll show you in a moment, he's saying I'm discovering the utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ to be what I need him to be Irrespective of my circumstances. So much of our well being, you see, is determined by our circumstances, isn't it? Things are going well and we're in a good mood. Our expectations are coming to pass, we feel great about that. But the important one to say to you this morning is that this letter of Paul was not written in a comfortable study. He wasn't sitting like a modern theologian behind a desk with a pile of books and bright lights on his page so he can see what he's writing. He said, I'm going to write an epistle to the Philippians. Oh God, will you please inspire me, this one, so this will become in the Bible. I'm going to make this a real one. No, he's not sitting in a study writing this. He's deprived of his freedom, wasting the best years of his life and discovering the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ so he can say, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether I'm well fed, have a full stomach, or hungry, an empty stomach. Whether in trouble, everybody's after me, or whether I'm comfortable. Let me pause a moment here and say I wonder if they've some of us need to get to know the Apostle Paul a little bit in this way. Because there may be folks here this morning and you're something of a prison. It won't have bars. At least the bars will be invisible bars. Maybe it's in your work life. And you feel Imprisoned there. You're not free. Perhaps it's too demanding. Perhaps the environment is toxic. Maybe some of you, some of us here, are in a marriage that's become difficult. And you feel a bit imprisoned in that marriage. Maybe your children aren't living for God. Maybe they've turned their back on everything that you gave them that was that you long to be at the core of their beings and they've, they've turned away from that and you feel resented perhaps. And you're in a prison there. Maybe you're in a prison of a body is isn't working properly, it's been damaged or it's some diagnosis that you have. Maybe it's unfulfilled dreams, and you've lived with dreams that seem to be evaporating now. Years are going by, and they're not happening. And you're in the prison of discipline. Maybe some in a financial prison, you know, the bills are bigger than the resources. Maybe like Paul, victim of gossip, misunderstandings by others. that's what that was the beginning of his imprisonment. I don't know where you are, but if you're in a prison this morning, I want you to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here, writing through his prison bars. He is saying there are resources for life and for joy no matter what your situation is. I'll tell you this. If a relationship with Jesus Christ works in a prison it will work anywhere. And if a relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't work in a prison, it won't work anywhere else either. Because you know the reality of Jesus Christ and you know the presence of Jesus Christ most in the darkest times, in the most difficult times. That's where you know he's real. Some of us can easily have a fairly shallow Experience of Christ is real to us, it is deep to us, but the moment the lights go off, and the moment we're into trouble, we feel totally lost. And God in His kindness again and again puts us into situations where we come to a point in saying, have nothing left except Jesus in this situation. See, when Paul wrote and said, you know, rejoice And the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. This is not some early version of positive thinking. He tells us how we can come into this position in the next verse, verse six. Let me read it to you again. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Let me, let me pause there a moment. Doesn't that sound unrealistic to you? You know, don't be anxious about anything. your kids back home are sick, and somebody says to you, hey, don't be anxious about anything. You say, man, you're not living real life. (laughs) But read the whole sentence. Don't be anxious about anything, but... I have a marking system in my Bible for link words. That includes the word, but... I have a color I use for that color, but... But is a key word. It's a hinge word. Do not be anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Give it to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We, we had an old man in England, a very godly man. He was mentioned this week by Peter Reed. I may have mentioned him too. His name was Alan Redpath, a very godly man. He's in heaven now. But he was talking to the students at the George Press School in England one day, and he said, the difference, he said, and he was a bit bowed over, he said, the difference between victory and defeat depends on where you put your butt. And all the students started laughing, because they had minds like some of you. <laughs> he didn't know what they were laughing at. He said, where you, where you put your bat is the key. And again, they laughed again. He said, What's the matter here? But he said, and this is one of those verses. He says, there is a problem. But God. He said, that's victory. There is God, but I've hit a problem. That's defeat. Where do you put your butt, he said? Students all remembered that, of course, and you will too. It's where you put your butt. Paul says, in everything. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. In other words, the anything which would cause you you. Anxiety becomes the everything, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He said, in the situation that normally would frighten you and threaten you, he says, give it to God with thanksgiving. This is more than praying about it. Because sometimes we pray about things, we don't give them to God. We talk to God about it, we ask other people to pray for us, and we say, God, amen, and then we walk on carrying the same burden. We had a friend and colleague in Austria, his name was Hans-Peter Royer, he wrote a book in German, I don't think it's been translated into English, he was a good man and he wrote a good book, and his book was entitled, What do you do after you say amen It's a book on prayer? What do you do after you say amen? I mean, do you go back? If I was carrying a big backpack with a heavy weight in, I came across and said, oh, God, this backpack is weighing me down. I'm so, it's so difficult. Please please help me with this. And, And amen, and I carry on carrying the backpack. Usually that kind of prayer is give me more strength. That's usually that kind of prayer because I've got to carry this flippin' thing. <laughs> no, he says, give it to God. Present it to God with thanksgiving. We just had Thanksgiving Day. With thanksgiving, meaning what? Saying, oh, thank you for this problem. No, it doesn't mean that. Present it to God saying, God, I'm giving this to you and I know I'm giving this to you because I'm saying, thank you. It's your problem now, not mine. Thank you. I give it to you. And you know when that is taking place because he says and read the whole thing. Don't be anxious about anything but in everything that makes you anxious. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God and the peace of God will transcend your understanding. Transcends all understanding will guard your hearts. Your hearts. That's Real you down there and your mind, how you think about things in Christ Jesus. You see, our security is not found in where we are or what we're carrying or what our situation is. Our security is found in who we're with. That is, in this situation in my life, Jesus Christ is present with me. I've given it to him. I've thanked him for his sufficiency, not for the problem, but for himself in this situation. And a security comes, as I say, not from where we are what we're carrying. It comes from who we're with. Let me illustrate this. My kids have three children, and uh, when they were young, my second child, Laura is her name, was in bed. She was about five Four or five, I was sitting in our lounge. My wife was out for the evening. And suddenly I heard a scream from Laura's room. It wasn't a cry, it was a scream, a scream of fear. I got up, I ran to her room, opened the door, went in, switched on the light, and Laura was half sitting up in bed, Clearly terrified, I went over and I sat by her, I put my arm around her, and I said, Laura, 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 what's the matter? And she quietened down. She said, there's somebody in the closet. I said, no, Laura, there's nobody in the closet. There is, there is, there's somebody in the closet. Laura. Laura. There's nobody in the closet. They they won't fit. There is, there is, somebody's in the closet. I said, Lord, you've had a nasty dream. Just calm down. I held her tightly. And she quietened down. And as I sat holding her quietly, suddenly I heard a noise from the closet. (laughs) (laughs) And and I thought to myself, there's somebody in the closet. So I looked at Laura. Her eyes were the size of saucers. I said, stay there, Laura. <laughs> I walked over to the closet, wardrobe, two handles on the main doors, one hand on each handle. I looked back at Laura. She was staring at I opened the doors. And there was the cat <laughs> locked in the closet. So I picked up the cat and put it out to the window. (laughs) When I sat down, I said, Laura, that was a nasty fright, wasn't it? Naughty cat, who put the cat in the closet? Now you settle down and go back to sleep. She said, but I'm afraid. I said, yes, but it was only the cat, wasn't it? And the cat's gone now, you saw it go. It should be landing shortly. And she said, uh, I want you to stay. I said, why? She said, because I'm afraid still. She said, and if you stay, I won't be afraid. Because in her little mind, she's saying, if something's going to get me, it has to get daddy first and nothing (laughs) ever gets daddy. They don't know much, do they? (laughs) That's what she thinks. I understood exactly what she needed. I said, "Laura, I'll stay." I tucked her in, sat in her chair in her room, and she was asleep before long. What she was saying was this, "There's something bigger than me, and it frightens me. I need my dad. Come. <laughs> ah! So he came. She screamed. And you see, Paul is saying there are things in life that frighten us. He says, don't be anxious because people are anxious. But he's not just giving a negative, don't be anxious, naughty, naughty, don't be anxious. He said, no, don't be anxious, Bat. this is why it's important you know where to put your bat. (laughs) But in everything, in those things that are making you anxious, present it to God and say thank you. Thank you for the problem? No. Thank you. Whatever threatens me doesn't threaten you. Whatever's bigger than me is not bigger than you. Thank you. I trust you. And thank him. And he said, and you'll discover this. Instead of anxiety, the peace of God which passes understanding, that is, in your mind, you'll start to feel a bit guilty about it. I'm supposed to be uptight here, you probably think. Which passes understanding. guard your heart. Guard your mind. We haven't time for this. Those are two different things your mind and your heart, which is the center of who you are, the disposition you have in life. Guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is something to be found in the midst of conflict. If I can give you another illustration, also from England. (laughs) And this is uh, when an art competition was held in England some years ago. And the subject to be painted was peace. And there were two prize winners. One of the prize winners had gone to the northwest of England, which is not far from where I used to live, into an area that we call the Lake District. You know, you've got a hill country in Texas, we've got a Lake District in the north of England. There are not many lakes in England, but this is an area where there's beautiful mountains and lakes, and this artist went there and painted a beautiful picture of a lake in the foreground, the mountains in the background, uh, the shadows on the, on the water, the uh, nice clear blue sky. He, he must have taken a, a liberty to put blue sky there. <laughs> Little couple of clouds to break up the sky. Down in the foreground, a little family of ducks were floating by. He looked at your picture, at the picture and he thought to himself, what a beautiful place. Man, I'd love to go there. It's so warm, so inviting, so pretty. And he submitted his painting. He called it Peace, and he won second prize. The other artist went down to the southwest coast of England where there's a peninsula we call Cornwall that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. Next stop is America. Goes underneath Ireland, past Ireland, if you go next stop. And this is, is a rugged peninsula. And this artist painted a picture of a cliff coming down into the ocean in a storm. There were waves blowing in from the Atlantic, beating against the, the base of the cliff and sending up its surf. The sky was black. A gale was blowing. There was a tree on the top of the cliff at a 45-degree angle as the, waves were, uh, as, the, as the gales were blowing in. Look at the picture, you felt cold, you felt miserable. You thought to yourself, I'm glad I'm not there. But two thirds of the way up the cliff, there was a cleft in the rock, and in the cleft of in the rock was a gull sitting on its nest with its eyes closed. And he called it peace. And he won first prize. The peace of God that passes understanding is not the peace of the beautiful lake district scene. That doesn't pass understanding. Travel agents use that kind of picture to stick in their window to make you think, oh, I want to go there. That doesn't pass understanding. It's the peace in the midst of the storm. And Paul says, you know, I had to learn this in verse 10. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. It's not instinctive to me. I've had to learn it. And he says in verse 12 there, you know, I, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. I've had to go into both places to learn this. Whether living in plenty or in want, I've had to go into both places to learn this. Second Corinthians chapter 4. He, he talks there about, um, I'll read verse 7. Uh, to 12. Let me read this to you. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. And isn't this? We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Pause there a moment. What is true for him? We're hard-pressed, We are perplexed, we are persecuted, we are struck down, everything comes against us, but although that is true, we're never crushed, never in despair, we're never abandoned, we're never destroyed. What's your secret, Paul? Next, verse 10. We always carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life might be revealed in our mortal bodies. He says, you see, when I get hit by these things, I say, I have already died to these things. I've accepted God's verdict on my own natural self is I'm worthy of crucifixion and I was crucified with Christ. So you can't hurt me anymore because all the hurt of that has been taken upon a substitute, the Lord Jesus. And instead, he says, his life is being revealed in my body. In other words, every time I'm knocked down, I discover again that there's the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in me. It enables me to live within those situations. Doesn't mean it wasn't hard for Paul. Sometimes when you read these summary things, you think, oh, that sounds a bit glib. He talks elsewhere about the pain and difficulties and hardships and frustration and discouragement that he went through in his life. But that was simply having to endure all the, all, all the tremendous things that were swirling around him. But right in the heart, every opportunity that brought me under attack gave me opportunity he says that the life of the Lord Jesus Christ may be revealed in me let me finish you with a story a man I knew very godly man and uh, he had a phrase he used to say and his phrase was for this I have Jesus and he'd say well for this I have Jesus And he encouraged people that he would say that too. And they think, oh, yeah, well, I have Jesus, too, those who are Christians. And then he printed a little bookmark made of a yellow, velvety material. And on it, the words, For this I have Jesus. And uh, he would give it away to folks. One day he had a stroke, he was an old man by then, he was in hospital, and I would call his wife to find out how he was getting on, and one day I called his wife, and she said, oh, he's just come home from the hospital today, he's sitting here on a chair, I'm gonna give him the phone, you won't understand anything he says because his speech is slurred, but he would love to hear your voice. So she passed the phone to him, and I said, I'm so sorry you're having to go through this hard, difficult time. And he began to speak, and his voice was slurred, but I knew what he said. He said very slowly, for this, I have Jesus. A week later, I was speaking at an event in England called Spring Harvest. It's an annual event held over East Time. It draws something like 60,000 people. It's a big crowd. And I was speaking at one of the evening celebrations they had in a big tent they put up. And uh, I I told this story. It happened about a week before. For this I have Jesus. And that was my challenge to the people, you know, what situation you're in. For this you have Jesus. About a month later, I got a letter in the mail from a lady. She said, I was a spring harvest the night you talked about for this I have Jesus. And she said, I tried to find you afterwards, but because it's a big crowd and things, I I couldn't find you. I went to the Spring Harvest office. I asked if they would give me your address, and they were very hesitant to do so. You know, there's all these security things people have in mind. Uh, But she said, I said, I have to get a message to him. So they gave me your address. So it was a handwritten note that she mailed to me. So I opened this letter, she explained that. And then she said, two years ago, my husband was killed in a road accident. We have two young children. It was the worst thing that could have happened to us. She said, the day before he was killed, a friend of mine sent me a letter And in the letter, she placed a little yellow velvet bookmark that said, For this I have Jesus. And when I opened the card and I saw that, I thought, That's cute. That's sweet. And I put it down on the table. Next morning, a policeman came to my door, told me my, fa- my husband had been in a road accident. Would I come with him to the hospital? I went to the hospital, by which time he had passed away. I had to identify his body, and then go to the elementary school to pick about two young children. The worst day of my life. She repeated that a couple of times. We came back home. As I came into our house, there on the table left from yesterday was this yellow bookmark, for this I have Jesus. She said to me, I cannot tell you what that has meant to me over these last two years. So much so, she said, we've inscribed on his tombstone, for this we have Jesus. And I ask you, as I finish this morning, is this this the Jesus you have? You see, you can have a Jesus who is the model that you try to follow and imitate. You can have the Jesus who's the kind of, what would Jesus do when you think about what you think he would do and you try to do it, and that's your Jesus. You can have a Jesus who's simply the patron of your theology. Or we can have a Jesus who's your life. And you know when he's your life, when everything falls apart. Accept him. That's when you know who he really is. Don't go looking for difficult times. (laughs) They'll come looking for you anyway. Don't go looking for difficult times. But the richest experience of the presence of jesus christ in your life comes often when things are the hardest you don't always feel it that way at the time but you will look back and say what is the security what is that steel in my soul that kept us intact it was the lord jesus christ his presence you know paul talks here And I'll just finish with this verse, which I didn't read. He says, I've learned to be content, whether well fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. He says there, I have learned the secret. It's a secret, he said, of being content. I can do all things through Christ who Chances me, I can live in any situation when Christ is my life. The secret is is not to get God to take us out of our circumstances. The secret is for us to learn to bring God into our circumstances. Our praying is usually, God, take me out of this. The secret Paul's learned is, God, you are in this. Thank you. I trust you. We had a good friend. She died of cancer. And before she died, she was in her bed. And my wife went to visit her. She said, how are you doing? How are you doing inside? She said, you know, I feel feel God is so distant from me. I, I, I keep saying, God, please... Show me yourself. And I feel that I'm under this blanket and there's a barrier between me and God. And, and, and my wife said to her, where do you think God is? <laughs> well, he's around, but I want him to come close to me. She said, why don't you invite him to come under the blanket with you? Instead of crying out from under the blanket, God, please... Come to me. Say, well, thank you. Come under the blanket with me. You're present here. <coughs> and he lives within you. She never saw him, her again because she died, but at the funeral, one of her friends was speaking, and she said she had such peace in the last days because she said, somebody said to her, ask Jesus to come under the blanket. Stop trying to reach him. Ask him to come and be under your blanket. And that was so reassuring to her. And she died in peace. Do you know Christ under your blanket? Do you know Christ in the tough times? For this, I have Jesus. We're not promised exemption from difficulty and suffering and pain. That is part and parcel of the human life in the fallen world. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've invited him into your life, if you haven't done this yet, of course, that's the starting point. Open your life and say, Lord, I realize you're outside because of the mess that's inside, so I ask you to clean up the mess and come by your spirit and live in me. And then bank on it. And you're going to find crises this week, this month, this year, as we go on for a new year in a short time. Remember, for every crisis you face, for this, I have Jesus. Thank you. I give it to you. Present with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? Let's pray together. In just a moment of quiet, maybe there are things in your life which you struggle with, seem to overwhelm you. Would, you. would you give that to the Lord Jesus and ask Him to be present in that thing? It might even be a sin you're battling with. And you might think He wants nothing to do with that sin. Actually, He does. He wants to come into that area of your life. Will you invite him to? Will you thank him? Some circumstance, some struggle, some fear, in a moment of silence, will you say of those situations, For this I have Jesus. Lord, I do thank you for every person in this building this morning. You love each one of us. There are no secrets. You know everything about us. And I thank you here for those whose lives exhibit to others what we talked about this morning because they live in that fellowship with yourself that is rich and deep and all-embracing. I pray for those of us for whom our belief in you leaves you a little on the periphery. We want, Lord Jesus, that you come right into the very center of our lives, center of our hearts, that we present things to you with thanksgiving. We don't live under the pressure of our anxieties, but everything that forms that anxiety, we present to you with thanksgiving and we experience the peace of God guarding our hearts, guarding our minds, for we can do all things through Christ who is our strength. Make this increasingly real and deep for us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.